Hello and welcome to another edition of The Legal Geeks. With me as always is my partner in geekdom who's looking extra dapper tonight. Hello, Josh Gilliland. How are you? Good evening, Jessica Peterson. <laughs> you look very spiffy, although not necessarily of this era. Can you tell me something about what you're wearing here? Well, I did not go steampunk tonight, but I did, <laughs> I did go 19th century with the vest and the shirt, uh, which are not uh, which are not from the 19th century, but done in that style. Uh, I actually did break out one of my great-grandfather's paper collars that he wore, because we have a box of those still. And, wow. Uh, he, he was thinner than me, so I, <laughs> he, he was the very in-shape farmer, as opposed to the first bow-tie-wearing lawyer in the family, who was a very rotund uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah. I'm more the lawyer. More the well, lawyer. yes. Being the lawyer is not necessarily the best for your health at all times. So, all right, you're wearing 19th century garb, replicas, mm -hmm. because we are here to discuss a president who really doesn't get enough attention or respect. And I've got to tell you, I don't know much about him, but you're here tonight to tell us to talk to us about President Garfield. And first, I want to tell, I want you to tell me why you're interested in Pre uh, President Garfield and why we should be interested in him. Well, a few months back, I read Candace Millard's Destiny of the Republic, a wonderful book about Garfield, his early life, and assassination. Absolute fascinating studying the man. Huh. While I was at UC Davis, I took basically a, a minor major in U.S. history. Instead of doing a double major, I decided instead to keep taking U.S. history classes, so I took eight or nine upper division history classes. Wow. About half of them in the 19th century, the other half in 20th century dealing with foreign policy issues. And we discussed Garfield not at great length, because mostly it turns into he gets assassinated and then what Chester Arthur does with the civil service reform that, that follows because of Garfield's death. Okay. He's only president for 200 days. Wow. So longer than the first Harrison, right. who died, died of pneumonia, oldest man elected president, and his nickname was Granny, and, and we didn't elect another man who was 69 years old until Reagan, so mm -hmm. we were pretty hesitant to do that. <laughs> We've been burnt before. Well, he decided, I don't like being called a wimp, so Harrison gave a, the longest inaugural address ever without a jacket, and it's like cold and raining, and he gets pneumonia and dies, so... Oh, don't do that. No. Garfield's president for 200 days. When? I'm really bad. When was he president? He was elected in 1880. And okay. so the Republicans dominated the White House throughout you know, the latter half of the 20th or the 19th century because all the Democrats were viewed as traitors for supporting the Civil War, slavery. Right. And, you know, you have Grant who's president for two terms. Harrison president for one because there's the Tilden Hayes dispute because Tilden won the popular vote barely. Hayes won the electoral college and that's actually decided in the house. Okay. And, and so part of the deal was we'll end reconstruction because it looks like we're going to have to fight another civil war to get the South to behave because uh, under Grant, we passed the Ku Klux Klan act and we're hunting down the Klan and, you know, force bills to take them on because they are, outright attacking U.S. citizens who are trying to vote, and we kind of we don't like that here. Mm -hmm. And 
but part of the deal with Hayes is all in reconstruction, and he did. And then we start using U.S. troops on Union workers up here in the north, and, you know, that does not go over well. And so part of the deal with Hayes was I'm only going to do one term. Hayes was yeah. also pretty burned out. That sounds like, like a rough time. He, he, the dude was exhausted because it was – there were party politics. There's this New York senator named Conkling who's a royal pain in the neck, total graft. His puppet is Chester Arthur. And Garfield goes to Chicago for the Republican convention. And he doesn't want to see Grant get nominated for a third term non-consecutively, even though all the banners say Grant and everyone thinks they're going to nominate Grant again. And he goes to support the other guy from Ohio. And he gives this, you know, Conkling gives this very pompous jerk speech. And then Garfield goes up and he gives this very moving speech about America and what, you know, everything that's, that you want to hear about our country. And then he ended it with, and who shall lead us, type quote, wanting it to be his buddy from Ohio. And somebody from the floor goes, Garfield, and he his reaction was like, "Oh my God!" And the <laughs> the convention swings towards him. Wow, he's he's sharing a room with another dude that he never met at a hotel because all the rooms are booked. His he's trying to decline this. He doesn't want the nomination. His wife doesn't even know this is happening. <laughs> and one of his buddies is you know the chairman of the convention refuses to recognize Garfield. And Garfield gets the Republican nomination without trying. Wow. He leaves. All the signage is for Grant. There are still flags flying that say Grant. And he's, he's suddenly wondering, How, what do I tell my wife? Mm -hmm. You know, like, this, this was a bit of a surprise. And, he, and uh, again, this was part probably ticket balancing, but Chester Arthur the original birther issue because there's the board he might have been born in Canada accidentally because of where the lines were between the United States and Canada uh -oh. uh, is the VP. And so you have, you know, the puppet of Conkling mm -hmm. and Garfield gets in, so elections November second. He wins. And he's a member of the U.S. House, who is one of the handful of congressmen to win the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, James K. Polk would be one. He was Speaker of the House prior to being president. And then Harding is another who was a congressman turned president. So it, it doesn't happen often Right. somebody to have that big of a rise who's just a lowly congressman. Representative, right. Well, on Election Day, he has the distinction of being a member of the U.S. House. He's also elected to the Senate, so he's Senate-elect, and he's president-elect all on the same day. <laughs> a, he becomes president, and there's a battle with Conkling over an appointment. Conkling wants one of his cronies appointed in New York, and the fight he fights with Garfield. Garfield ultimately wins, and it's a beautiful destruction of this you know, corrupt senator because... Mm -hmm. He's like, fine, if I can't have my way, I'll just resign. And one of my buddies will resign, too. And they go back to New York thinking that the, the legislature is just going to reelect them, and they lose. They don't get right. <laughs> so he destroys his political career. And Excellent. It's pretty awesome. And then because of a, a 
individual with delusions of grandeur who believes God's talking to him, who was in a commune, who's just a kind of a failed individual racking up debt, ex-wife, just, just a very, some could say crazy individual, mm-hmm. decides he should be ambassador to France, trying to get in to see the president, that's not happening, trying to get in to see the secretary of state, that's not happening. So he then stalks the president of the United States and on July 2nd, 1881, shoots him. After practicing with the gun, there was some hesitation as well, so demonstrating he knew what he was doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Garfield just doesn't die. If his doctors had left him alone, and if Robert Todd Lincoln hadn't been Secretary of War, Garfield might have survived. Where things fall apart and Robert Todd Lincoln is inadvertently responsible for the death of a US, another U.S. president, his dad, <sighs> he couldn't stop his dad, but he was on hand oh. for his dad. Oh. He goes, well, Dr. Bliss treated my dad after my dad got shot. I'll go get Dr. Bliss, who then immediately takes over the care of the president. Because he did it so well the first time. He, well, again, Lincoln got shot through the head. so there I know. Two, but I'm just saying, I don't know if that would be like, you know, the guy who tra- treated my dad who didn't do it successfully. I don't know if that's who I would jump to immediately for the next president who's been shot. I'm like, let's try someone new. <laughs> <laughs> there are already like nine doctors here. Maybe we should stop. Maybe we're going to, maybe we'll let the family doctor do it. Yeah, it's not like the Bliss has a track record of success that justifies, you know, going to get him. No. So nobody, funny thing in the medical field at this point in time, in England, in Europe, Lister had convinced everyone the importance of sanitizing equipment, washing hands, and having a sterile environment to work on people. There were older U.S. doctors who rejected that, who thought pus coming out of wounds was a good thing. That's just what what happens when you treat somebody. And so they poke and prod around the president where the bullet wound is and go just make horrible decisions. And so they're infecting the president the more they prod him. Alexander Graham Bell, God bless him, decides, I got an idea. I am going to invent a medical metal detector, which he kind of does in like a couple weeks on the fly. You know, you know, it's just awesome. Wow. And, and, but Bliss won't let him actually check the president all over. He's like, the bullet has to be here. It's got to be here on the right side of the body. Well, it was actually on the left. Oh, and, God. And so just, just screwing the president. The president, realizing he's dying, it's July and turning into summer and just miserable in D.C., the Navy invents the first air conditioner. Wow. Yeah. It was really noisy, and they had to figure out that side of it. But, you know, they, you know it's one of those things that came out of this tragedy. Uh, it shows American ingenuity with like, hey, let's go invent the air conditioner. <laughs> A bunch of naval engineers go like, all right, here's what we got to do, and go. <laughs> Wow. It's like some weird reality show challenge when you think about it. It's like, okay, here's the situation. It is really hot. President is dying. What What do you do? (laughs) Let's make an air conditioner. 
<laughs> so they eventually take the president by train up to New Jersey, and he dies up there in September 19th, 1881. Because the poor guy's basically dying of an infection at this point. Yeah, and the autopsy, they go like, well, we really screwed up. You know, he's just like riddled with infection. His doctors finished him off. And truly sad. Now, something funny happens. You know, the guy who shot the president, after shooting the president, you know, said, don't worry, you know, President Chester Arthur will pardon me. And so Arthur's, you know, in the back going like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> this is not happening. I don't know this man. We are not together. Yeah. Arthur's hiding out in New York and a couple other places. So it raises some serious constitutional issues of who's in charge. Wow. You know, if we thought the, you know, 24-hour period where Reagan got shot was bad. I'm in control here, right? Is that what Alexander said? Don't worry, I'm in control, or is it I'm in charge? I'm in charge here, which kind of came out wrong, but the intent was I'm here and right. everything's okay. But the, the vice president's on his way, Speaker of the House is over there, everything's cool. We're all gonna, <laughs> everyone is where they need to be. We are okay. <laughs> hey, hey, everyone was stressed. And he, sh he should get a little more forgiveness for, for that one, but it was a 25th Amendment issue. Yes. By the way, I have to jump in for a second and say that Ronald Reagan, after he was shot, was treated at my university's hospital, GW Hospital, which I am so old now that I went back recently to, to GW, and it turns out they've actually physically moved the entire hospital. That is how long wow. ago I went to college, and even longer ago that Reagan got shot, of course. But yes, that is one of my university's few claims to fame, is we successfully treated a president to a shot, so... He walked in on his own because he wanted to show that, you know, don't freak out. Kudos to him. At the Reagan Library, they, they have an exhibit there on that. Really? Including the suit that he wore. Wow. Which is really powerful to stand over that and to look at the president's suit that he wore when, when he was shot. Yeah. So Arthur becomes president after several months of Garfield dying. Oh. and does a complete political 180. And so he becomes Mr. Civil Service Reform, doesn't, is unsuccessful in getting the nomination for president uh, in 1884. It goes to uh, Blaine, who was the uh, Secretary of State for Garfield, who then loses to Grover Cleveland, mm -hmm. who then loses to the second Harrison, who then beats the second Harrison. Right. So, which is, so it's a very weird political time when you look oh, at that. a weird political time. Wow. So, and Garf, or excuse me, uh, Grover Cleveland was former governor of New York. He was also the one who had the baby out of wedlock, right? Wasn't that his whole, and he was a bachelor and. Yeah, and the baby's name was Ruth. Excuse oh. me. The, the baby that he had after marrying and having a baby in the White House, they named her Ruth. And thus the candy bar was named after Oh, that's where baby Ruth's come from. Okay, look at that. Josh, you are a font of knowledge. Yeah, you know, in the days before Google, there was Josh. <laughs> well, speaking of all your knowledge, let's talk about so the legal issues. I mean, you've kind of raised a few already, but let's go through what are the legal issues from this long, it sounds like incredibly painful assassination attempt and then subsequent death that Harrison went through, or not Harrison, excuse me, you're talking about Harrison, Garfield, and he went through. What are the legal issues besides the obvious 
murder charges, I guess. Well, presidential succession would be the big one. To, you know, post-World War II, we drew some big lines with the 25th Amendment and the Presidential Secession Act that if the president's incapacitated, who's in charge? They didn't have that. So you have the Secretary of State and others wondering, um, what do we do here? Wow. So, because there wasn't a provision for making the vice president acting president. Mm -hmm. And you basically had the president's secretary issuing orders on what to be doing. So it's like, yeah, that's totally constitutional. So there were some <laughs> big, big problems with that. And we didn't fix that for another 60 years. So Well, because Woodrow Wilson, right? I mean, wasn't that the argument when he was basically probably incapacitated by strokes at the end of his last term? And his yeah. wife was basically like, I spoke to the president, and here's what he wants. Yeah, that, that was not okay. I mean, just the, the other one where you, it, it comes up is where McKinley shot, who ironically was killed in Buffalo shortly after seeing Robert Kennedy. So the black cloud strikes again and he doesn't die immediately as well. There, it takes a little time for him to pass with Theodore Roosevelt sitting around going like, okay, now what do we do? So uh, it, it came about a couple times. And it's also yeah. sur surprising after that stuff happens and it takes pretty much the Kennedy assassination to make it a federal offense to kill the president. Hmm. Because it was a state law, it was just murder. You know, yeah. you, just, you just killed a person, and so uh, we we then up the ante for doing that for obvious reasons uh, because it happens. So that's one. Okay. Another one was a jurisdiction argument on where to try the assassin because the assassin took the point of view: Hey, I shot him in D.C. and he died in New Jersey. And you're trying to charge me here in D.C. And this, the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia said, no, no, the crime was committed where the act happened, not mm -hmm. where he died. And you shot him here in D.C., so we gotcha. But there was some very lengthy analysis going back to common law in England on how to resolve that. And it's a wow. fascinating to read. Uh, it was... Justice Cox, who wrote about that and, you know, in that part of the trial and deciding that the court had jurisdiction. You also had how to have a fair trial for this guy, mm -hmm. because it's not like you could move the trial to Greenland. Right. When somebody takes out a president, it kind of makes the news. Yeah. And while they didn't have social media, they had the Telegraph and the Penny Press. There's great books about how the Telegraph was a lot like the Internet today with communications going back and forth. Huh. Uh, you know, called the Victorian Internet. Huh. Good little read. But figuring out how to unpanel a jury was an issue. And so... That was one part of making sure he had a fair trial. There was a provision under the D.C. Code about paying for witness expenses for the defense because the defendant was broke. Mm -hmm. How do we get the witnesses from point A to point B? And the court said, I'm, I'll take this into chambers and figure out how many we're going to pay for. Huh. And then there was the big issue of the insanity defense. 
which is huge, and let's let's break that one down as we talk about it. But All right, it's always a big one, obviously, for the assassination attempts. Always works well. Jody Foster made me do it. Yeah, but there's a difference. He wasn't found not guilty by reason of san insanity. John Hinckley was not competent to stand trial by reason of insanity. True. There are two different parts. That's true, right? Insanity at the time of the crime, and then, yes, whether you're competent to assist your lawyers at the time of your trial. So what uh, – I've never been able to pronounce the defendant's name, but uh, Gitaru uh, argued, I was insane at the time of the crime because God told me to kill the president. However, I'm not insane anymore because God's not telling me to do that. Okay. So he wanted to just get out completely, scot-free, walk away. Yeah, cool. He's not crazy anymore. All right. That did not go well. So let me pull from what Justice James of the Supreme Court for the, Nor for the District of Columbia described for the insanity defense. And since it's from the 19th century, it is a little long. Insanity is a defense on the very ground that it disables the accused from knowing that his act is wrong. The very essence of the inquiry is whether his insanity is such as to deprive him of that knowledge. If a witness is competent to give his opinion as to the mental condition of the accused, he is competent to state his opinion as to the degree of capacity or of incapacity by reason of the disorder and whether the disorder seemed to have reached such a degree as to deprive him of the knowledge of right and wrong. That capacity or incapacity is itself a question as to the extent of the disorder, if disorder exists, and is not a conclusion to be drawn from the, the existence of insanity. And what followed was over 30 witnesses in the couple-month trial. Wow. And they had one, a Dr. Barker, for the prosecution who was asked, is the habit of boasting of intimacy with people holding high positions and possessing influence and power when the fact is otherwise any evidence in your judgment as a scientist of an insane delusion, to which the doctor responded, it is not an evidence of a delusion of an insane person because it is not the result of a disease. It is a result of vanity and self-conceit and love of notoriety. These are vices and not diseases. He could be talking about the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> they then got into, evidence scholars should have a field day with this one, but they called the ex-wife up to testify. Whoa. And, whether, and instructed her not to disclose any communications they had during, while they were husband and wife. Sure. But whether or not she saw any abnormal behavior. And hmm. she said no. Now, where evidence scholars could get a little finicky about this is that opinion is actually based upon communications. Right. How do you do that without, yeah, taking into account what, you, what should be privileged? Huh. Uh, but they're not actually disclosing the communications, right. which, which sounds like a creepy NSA argument that we're not, we're only looking at the context, not the content of your <laughs> email messages and text messages and voicemail. Right. We're not considering them for the truth of the matter asserted. Yeah. So that still would give people pause. It's like, it, it's a good evidence question. And they, mm -hmm. they've, they found that it was okay for her to testify to that when it, when it was appealed. Okay. So... He then, the defendant ends up testifying for two weeks himself. And oh, since, my God. 
And since she's a raging schmuck, that does not play well with the jury. There were times when they thought they needed to muzzle him because he was, like, torpedoing his own case just by making yeah. snippy comments because his ex-brother-in-law is representing him who's a patent lawyer because nobody else wanted to touch that. Right. And, and the, while he's on the stand and talks about all these other points in his life, he basically puts his entire life on trial. Sure. And so there's rebuttal ev evidence from a whole bunch of people talking about what a schmuck this guy is going back to the 1870s. So for like over a decade of he did this fraud, he did that, he's a pain in the neck here. Yes. Once he, what is it? Open the, what is it called? Open the door, open the gate. Yeah, you can take, put in all that evidence. And that's why it's so risky for criminal, defend, criminal defendants to testify on their own behalf because they do risk opening the door to all of that. And when you start out with, I was born a poor child, and, you know, go from, go forward, yeah. it's, you're really skating on thin ice. Oh. And so the court went like, yeah, it was okay to call all those rebuttal witnesses. So mm -hmm. that was, that was okay. So there we are with those big issues during the trial. And it took like an, after the months of trial, it took the jury approximately an hour to convict Yeah. <laughs> Did they have the death penalty then? Was he oh, sentenced to death or was okay. he? Oh, no, they hung him. They, oh. totally, they totally hung him. Okay. And, oh. He, and he gave a really weird childish prayer before they oh. pulled the lever to, to hang him too. So. Okay. His, now, his ex-wife actually personally went out to go see Garfield's widow, you know, to beg for mercy. And wow. To which, you know, that took a fair amount of backbone, and Mrs. Garfield said, no, get out of my house, type of, oh. we, we don't do that here. Yeah. All right, well, let's move off that very unpleasant. I have uh, two cents for me, the death stuff, the execution stuff. So we'll move on to the doctors. What about the doctors who treated President Garfield? Did they ever get brought up on malpractice charges of any sort? Did they have medical malpractice back then? There would have been an excellent malpractice case against Bliss. Yeah. What, what he did. It'd be very interesting to get into like the standards of practice and the industry standard because right. it split at that point in time. Mm -hmm. However, the split would show you incompetent fool, you killed the president of the United States. And there would be the battle. He, he it disgraced his career. It effectively ended his career from, from what I remember from, from Millard's book. But it highlights the dangers of VIP medicine, which mm -hmm. the doctors who treated Reagan were very aware of that. And that's why they treated Reagan like a patient huh. as opposed to treating him like the president. Yeah. Which is why he survived. Yeah. So, huh. so granted, they also sterilized things and everything else, but they... Medicine had advanced a bit. Yeah, just a touch. Just a touch. <laughs> I mean, doctors of that era were called butchers for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it highlighted the split. I mean, there were some very damning editorials from other doctors, the younger doctors who were, you mm -hmm. know, who, who had believed in Lister and sterilizing equipment and not just poking a finger into a wound and cleaning equipment and everything. And it, it ended his career. Huh. I wonder if it helped advance the medical profession in that area. I, I don't know. I would, I would think so. And is Lister from Listerine? That's all I can think of every time you say Lister. No, no connection? Not that I know of. He, he was right. a Brit British doctor. 
was highly acclaimed, did wonderful things to advance the science of medicine. And if only they had listened to him, if only Bliss had not openly criticized him. Yeah. Part of Millard's book goes back to uh, the World's Fair in the late 1870s, in which Bell was there demonstrating the telephone. And Lister was also there and just getting ridiculed by U.S. doctors who didn't believe in sterilizing things. And just little thing, you know, it's just if they had sterilized the wound, you know, sterilized the equipment. Mm-hmm. Oh. It, well, I, oh, go ahead. You know, Garfield's death did unify the country. No. Oh. Kind of after the Civil War, everyone's kind of like, once again, it's no longer Republicans versus Democrats or Southern versus Northern. It's our president was killed. Yes, because he grew up in object poverty. Poor kid, brilliant mind, worked his way up from his own bootstraps, went to college and swept the floors to pay for it the first year. And the second year was teaching classes. So just an absolutely brilliant mind believed in the things that we care about today. And mm -hmm. so when, at that point in U.S. history, because we were tired of basically refighting the Civil War of the South over African Americans and basic civil rights, a lot of the Republicans were tired of it. Yeah. Uh, he was one of the ones that weren't. Now, Grant was one of the ones who, who was not either. Yeah. And so <clears throat> just just an interesting footnote that – he was also a brilliant Civil War general who also understood the cost of war. So Garfield or? Garfield. Oh, Garfield was a Civil War general too? Yep. So a lot of, yeah, basically every president that we had after the Civil War had fought in the Civil War for the North. Yeah. And he attacked a Confederate encampment, and the Confederate encampment was larger than his army. So he broke his army up into three groups and had them attack from the three different directions at the same time. And the Confederates thought they were being attacked by a larger force mm -hmm. and surrendered. Wow. So just a neat guy. Wow. Very interesting. Well, what other ramifications were there on the law from his assassination? Getting back to the legal issues. Well... I found a defamation case from the late 1880s, so it was from 1887, and because, just as today, the press tries a case, well, they called Gitaru a crank. Well, somebody gets called a crank and sues another guy because he got called a crank, mm -hmm. and which had taken a negative meaning because yeah. of the assassination of Garfield. And the court actually broke open the dictionary and, and issued a demur for the defendant in the case and said, here's the legal, you know, or here's the, the definition of crank, which means crank-brained and murderously inclined person from the media. Huh? And cited, um, you know, cited that dictionary and... Um, which actually the dictionary definition was some strange action caused by a twist of judgment, a caprice, a whim, a crocket, a vulgarity. And the defense won in that one because that wasn't enough for defamation in and of itself. Huh. All right. Look at that. New derogatory terms coming out of the assassination. Exactly. Well, think of when you look at assassins, 
whether it was Lee Harvey Oswald or John Hinckley or um, Dan White, you you know, they all take a rightful beating in the press. Mm-hmm. And in the case of White, his attorneys never argue, never use the word Twinkie defense in their arguments. You know, they talk yeah. about diminished capacity and how he changed and was not eating right and all the other issues that were wrong with him. And it was the press that nicknamed it the Twinkie defense. And it stuck. Yeah. So we rightfully and understandably don't like assassins. They deserve our scorn because they take someone who's decided to engage in the political process to help people and get murdered for it. And we have a low, mm-hmm. very low tolerance for those individuals. You just need to look at the Sirhan Sirhan trial in which you know the lead prosecutor, who's later a California Court of Appeals justice, you know, took the opinion with all these psychological testimony to just throw it out. And if you throw it out and you don't believe it, you have nothing but cold-blooded first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. And you know the jury went like, "Yeah, that's exactly what he did to Bobby Kennedy." Mm-hmm. And so we, as a country, we have very low tolerance of that. Yes, we do. Well, finally, on a little bit lighter subject, what would be a good factoid about President Garfield that most of us do not know, given that most of us know very little about President Garfield anyway? He was an impressive geek. <laughs> maybe, Man after our own hearts. Maybe the smartest president we ever had. Wow. John Quincy Adams is up there, but this man was brilliant. And he would entertain people at parties. By, he was the first left-handed president. And oh. he, would, he would write in both his left and right hand simultaneously. Okay. One hand in Greek and the other hand in Latin to impress people. Wow. Thinking about doing that gives me a headache. I, oh. I, I've forgotten most of the German I learned in high school and college. <laughs> but the idea of trying to do, like, write English and German at the same time seems hard. The idea of writing German and, say, French at the same time seems very hard. I Just trying to write anything with my left hand in English seems hard. Then trying to write in both hands with English. Yeah, that is several levels above me. That is cool. How funny. I wonder when he discovered that he could do that, too. And was he actually able to study for both classes at the same time? I don't know. But, my <laughs> God, it's, you hear that and you kind of go back. It's like, that's a level, an intelligence level that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And because it is hard to walk and shoot bubble gum at the same time. Yep. You know, there are all those exercises that you do that give most people a splitting headache. And here he is writing in two languages simultaneously. So that's a fun little factoid about James Garfield. Well, thank you, Mr. Gilliland. I think we have all learned a lot more about President Garfield today. I have to say, I have never given him the respect he's apparently due for his short 200 days in office. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this tonight. I think uh, I'll have to add that book to my Amazon wish list. I don't know when I'll get to it, but I will add it to the wish list. Sounds like a plan, Jessica. (laughs) Well, stay geeky, America. Stay geeky. Bye, Josh.